Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Sean Marshall, better known as Cat Power, has been making music for decades. Her recent release, Covers, includes songs from the likes of Billie Holiday, Frank Ocean, Bob Seger, and Iggy Pop. She'll perform at Variety Playhouse on Wednesday. And later this hour, City Light senior producer Kim Trobes brings us a conversation with Cat Power. First, the power of Picasso. You can journey through more than 200 works by Pablo Picasso in a new immersive experience at Pullman Yards. The exhibition Imagine Picasso will be on view through June 19th. Annabelle Moshe is the exhibition director. She joins us now via Zoom to tell us more about the show. Annabelle, welcome to City Lights. Bonjour, Louise. Bonjour. What led you to conceive the idea of Imagine Picasso. Oh, the idea of Imagine Picasso came from 2009. At this time, I was working in a place called Cathédrale d'Image in south of France, where the immersive exhibitions start and were created at the first time. And we did a Picasso exhibition in Cathédrale d'Image because uh, in 2009, there was a huge exhibition about Picasso in Le Grand Palais in Paris. And we just thought, okay, why, why don't we do something about Picasso in an immersive way? And at this time, I was not the director. <laughs> and then, you know, it was like something important for me to do it the way I wanted to do it. And this means, for me, Picasso was not only a painter, he was a sculptor. And I just thought, okay, why don't we sculpt his paintings? Wow. So which Picasso scholars, art historians, or experts did you work with to create this exhibition? To create this Imagine Picasso exhibition, I had to work, first of all, with the Picasso succession, you know, because the Picasso family, his children are very powerful about all the, the paintings and the creation, you know, he made. So I have to deal with them, but they really agree at all, <laughs> because in 2009, I was the person who was speaking with them. So they knew how I wanted to do it. And of course, when I went to see them in 2019, they said, of course, you can do it. And I just asked them to tell me who was the most important art historian about Picasso in France, who could help me. 
And they said to me, there is one person you have to work with. Her name is Androula Mikael. And I was so happy because she was, I would say, really interested to work with me on this new kind of exhibition, this new kind of showing the, the works of Picasso. And it was just a pleasure for me. And the other things which was very important is the French architect Rudy Ricciotti, who built those models you will see in the middle of uh, the immersive room and which really helped me to built this exhibition because you know for me with this exhibition we just go through all what we what we say in French idée reçue which means all the idea you have before coming into an immersive exhibition ideas it means high walls nothing in the place just images no I, I wanted to do something else I really wanted to build a travel, not only a journey, but a travel into Picasso's work. And I wanted the people not to just lay down somewhere on the floor. I wanted them to walk through the exhibition and never stop walking. That's why I decided to, to build those models in the middle of the room you will discover. Yes, so let's walk through the exhibition. What do guests see? when they enter Imagine Picasso? They see lots of images <laughs> of Picasso works. I would say, you know, an immersive exhibition is not a room after another room after another room, like you, you will find in a classic museum. It's just one room, but every period of Picasso's work are in the same place chronologically which means that with those images, you will go through his work from the beginning, his first years as a child, paintings, in comparison to how he was painting his own children. And I like a lot uh, this first part of the exhibition for another reason. The two little girls you will hear at this time is... Eleonore and Constance, my two daughters. So oh. every time I hear them, you know, it's very important for me. It's like I'm bringing them every time I'm just traveling all around the world. <laughs> so I like it. Okay, and there they are with Picasso. <laughs> He's sort of a godfather to them, if you oh, will. In fact, yes, you know, because I have a, a common point in a, in a certain way with Picasso, because he was buried the day I was born, April 10th, okay. 1973. So yes, in a certain way, we have this common point. And I'm, I'm, when I created this exhibition, I always think about it, you know. I always have to do something personal. And at this time, it really works, in fact. Yes, you, you have this cosmic connection or synchronicity with that. And when you go through uh, this beginning of the exhibition, then you will discover all these periods. Because I think that most people don't really know the work of Picasso. You know, he painted so much paintings. They don't really know how he was painting and what he was painting. And I think it was important to show all those periods from the, the blue, the pink, um, the cabism, many kinds of cabism, not only one, in fact, and this surrealism, which was so important for him. I think I had to do that. And perhaps remembering what happened in 2009 in, in France, I also wanted to show and that's important for me, how he was in a certain way having his own interpretation of some of his master in painting. I mean Delacroix, I mean Manet. And that's important too, because it means that in this exhibition, you will see painting that could not be at the same time at the same place. You can't have Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, you can't have all those paintings which are in Paris are, we were talking about Chicago, some of them of course are in Chicago, and of course in Madrid too, because we need to talk about Guernica, which was yes. so important for him. 
And, you know, in an immersive exhibition, you can have all those paintings at the same time, at the same place, and they can travel. And I think, you know, it is so important. We just came out from this COVID, which was so difficult for everybody. We need to stay at home. We couldn't move. We couldn't travel. And to travel with those exhibitions, for me, it was really important. And I'm still traveling. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. I read in one of the displays that Picasso believed artwork should not decorate an apartment. It should be an offensive and defensive weapon. You mentioned Guernica, Picasso's famous 1937 work. It's said to be the most powerful anti-war painting ever created. Annabelle, how did he provoke such depth of emotion? How does he arouse those feelings in his art? You know, I think Picasso was saying that he was not painting what he was looking, but what he was thinking. And I think that's very important if you look at this painting of Guernica, because there is such a violence in this painting, in the movement, and in what you see when you see uh, this child, which is dead, when you see his mother's crying when you see those people with all those fire next to it. But in fact, there is one color missing if you look at it because the painting is only a shade of gray. And when I talk about it with Andrula Michael, she said to me, you're right. The color of blood is missing. The red is missing. And I asked the Picasso succession if I can put this red color on the floor. And they said to me, okay. And I was very happy because when you look at this Guernica's painting in the exhibition, this red color on the floor in a certain way gave you another way of seeing it. You have all the details on the models, you've got the entire painting is on the wall. And I think, you know, it was really important for us to, to show this in this way. I like what you said about he painted what was in his mind. He painted what he was thinking to provoke emotion on the part of the viewer. Like many creatives in the early 20th century, Picasso's work explores the subconscious. What are some other examples of paintings by Picasso that depict themes of sex and death? You know, for me, there is many, in fact, you know. At the end of this period of Guernica in the exhibition, you will see many paintings about how, in fact, he was describing war with little things. Little thing from the kitchen, for example. You can see forks. There is a, there is a painting with those forks. And art historians say that those forks are crying. There is many things like this. He was using simple things, usual, from your daily life to express the stress, to express the suffering. That's the first thing. But, you know, as you said, how is expressed death sometimes? In another way, sometimes, in, in a loving way. For example, in the exhibition, one of my favorite part is uh, another painting, which is called The Young Lady and the Mirror. Yes. And when you look at this painting, when you see th this young lady in front of a mirror, the mirror, of course, will express what's going to happen, <laughs> I would say. And, and, and how everybody, you know, had to understand that, Death is a part of life, and particularly for a young lady. And, and, and I think he, he was looking at everybody in a certain way. Some people said that for him, everyone was an object. And in a certain way, yes, everyone is an object, but an object of thinking, uh, an object of reflection. And, you know, this little girl in front of a mirror as his own reflection. I think, in a certain way, he took the words and make a painting with the words. It's marvelous. 
And in fact, speaking of words, you also convey Picasso the poet in this show. Mm-hmm. Yes, il neige au soleil. <laughs> if you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is Annabelle Moget, exhibition director of the Imagine Picasso Immersive Experience on view now at Pullman Yards. In that large third room, which is the immersive part of the show, there is music of French as well as Spanish composers, mm -hmm. songs, and sounds Picasso himself would have known while the artist's works are projected around the room. You mentioned his Cubist period, and I was hoping you would talk about projecting some of the images onto geometric shapes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, we did it a lot. And we, we really made a huge uh, study, would say in English, about those geometrical points in the paintings because most of the time people don't see it but he was working like a mathematician on his paintings while he was using cubism and i think it was important in the exhibition in another way you will see all his work with uh, albert einstein when you see all these astronomical points you know in black and white and It's probably for me and for us, you know, because I'm not working alone. I'm working with Julien Baron, who's co-directing this exhibition and who is an engineer mm. and really took time to look at all those points and to do something with it, you know, to, to make them appear on particularly on the models. And, and I think it was really important, you know, be, because it really makes a sense between the paintings and the models. There is always a dialogue between them. And, and for us, it was really important. And as you said, for Cubism, it really takes another, it, another level of, uh, I would say, understanding. It's very effective. Picasso was Spanish-born and proud of his heritage. <laughs> But as one critic explained, He needed Paris to become a great artist. Mm -hmm. When he moved to Paris in 1904, what was the impact on his career? I think it changed everything. Because being in Paris, in Montmartre, he was meeting all the other painters, you know, at this time. There was a real dialogue between them. And... I think it was so important for him to have this dialogue. And, you know, we don't forget that Picasso's father was not an art historian, but he was teaching how, how to paint. And that's where he learned, you know, in Spain, he learned how to paint in Barcelona and then in Madrid. And I think being in Paris with all those painters alive like him, or the dead one, you know, we were talking about Manet, uh, we were talking about Delacroix. He spent so many times in the Louvre looking at them. I think he wanted to all the time have his own interpretation of those paintings because he was always thinking how they were doing it, what they wanted to say. And for Picasso, of course, the meaning of those paintings is not the same as you and me. And Indeed. He lived a long, productive life, died in his 90s, and Picasso created an estimated 60,000 works, 60,000 pieces of art in his life. How did you and your creative team narrow it down to 200 works? It was a hard job. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> no, but, you know, I was not alone. And Andrula know all this work by heart. You know, she made two theses about this subject. So 
when I said to her, I need 200, she said, okay, now we're going to have a look. In fact, what, what we've done is that she made a first selection. And then, of course, because of my experience of immersive experience, you know, immersive rooms, I said to her, okay, I think this one is better. I think this one won't work, you know. When you are in an immersive way, you're not reacting and thinking as you are in, for example, a classic museum. And I think it was important, you know, the message to, to understand why we want to do this immersive exhibition. We wanted to everybody understand who he was, what he was painting, that's the first thing. And I would say the other thing is that you know, with Picasso, it's a bit difficult to understand what he was doing because the public in front of a Picasso painting, if it's a real, I would say, a classic one, you see a little girl, you will see a boy, you will see his mother, you know, in and with a very formal way, and it's easy to understand. But nobody go further. They don't go further to see why he was painting at this period in blue, why he was painting at this period in pink. You know, you don't go further. And in another way, in front of a Cubism painting or in front of a Surrealism painting, most of the time people don't understand what he's painting. But they don't go further either because Picasso is a genius. So they just think that he's a genius and they don't want to go further. They don't have to understand. What I really wanted to do is to say, you can understand something. Just hear and listen to yourself and try to, to see this dialogue between the models and the walls, between the floor, you know, and this ambience with the music, between all the paintings and... I think that was the most important and to divide it in chapter because it was really a hard work to do this exhibition and that's why I really wanted to to explain everybody how I divided it and you can see it in what I call you know the pedagogical room where you have all the the explanation about the ex the, the exhibition I think it was really important to do this job I would say before entering into the immersive room yes to get the background and you provide the context for what we're about to see. Indeed, Picasso's work transcends artistic category and he painted in many styles, as you explained earlier. Some visitors may be surprised if they think only of Picasso as an abstract artist to see the painting of his first wife, Olga in an armchair. Would you talk about this more realistic depiction? I like it so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's lovely. What, what you can see is a, is a man who's loving his wife, and I like it so much. But, you know, it was a, a nice period for him. It's like, you know, when you see um, what in French we say les baigneuses, which are all those women, you know, next to the sea. I think he was happy, you know, he was just happy. But he was also, because when he was painting for him, it was work. It was an experimentation, you know. We don't have to forget that even... If he was in love, if he was expressing his feelings, he was always working. It was not, I would say, a hobby for him to no. paint. It was really a work. And what we see, I think, it's in a certain way experimentation. But I would also say that at this time, you know, you were not finishing <laughs> your paintings. And the one you're talking about, it seems that the painting is not finished. And... I think it's important in a certain way because it means that his life with his woman was not finished. Oh. Imagine Picasso debuted in Lyon, France, and then went on to Canada and in the U.S., San Francisco, now Atlanta. Annabelle, have you observed any difference in the reception for this exhibition by French attendees versus the North Americans? 
<laughs> oh, of course, there is a difference because, you know, you said that he was a Spanish painter, but for us, he's a French painter. <laughs> Bien sûr, of course. <laughs> we're so proud of this, you know, because he really decided to come to France and to stay in France, even if sometimes it was hard, you know, because, for example, the Second World War was not an easy life for him in Paris. But he decided to stay and, and he decided to end his life in South of France. He didn't go back to Spain. So, of course, for French people, I would say that Picasso is someone very important. And when I create this exhibition, I first of all, but more than France, I wanted to do it in Lyon, which is where I'm talking to you from where I'm talking to ah. you right now because I'm living in Lyon. <laughs> oh, lovely. The, also the gastronomical capital of France, <laughs> if there is just one. Yes, it is. <laughs> and, and I was very happy, you know, because it's not, it's not Paris. Lyon is not Paris. But I was sure the public would be there. And in fact, it was really a great success. I mean... Um, I think that more than 100,000 people came to see the exhibition in, in Lyon in two months. It was just before the COVID appeared. And, and I was very happy. Going to the United States, it's so nice. Really, I'm very happy. It's another way, you know, to see it because this exhibition, I would say, have two formula. In, in France, you know, we, we did the exhibition in a, in a venue which has very not high walls, you know. It was a small place with not high walls. And I have to think really differently uh, an immersive uh, exhibition. You know, it was not the classic way to present those kind of exhibits. And I'm happy too when I'm in the United States because... In this place, I mean in San Francisco or in Atlanta, or, and even in Quebec, in Vancouver, uh, everywhere the exhibition has been, we had high walls, we had all the modules, <laughs> and I was very happy to see in this different way. And I was, you know, really touched to see the public discovering Picasso, because in the United States, I, dis I discovered that you know, most of the people know the name of Picasso, but they don't really know his work. And, and I think it was really important to go there. And as I said to you, when he painted Garnica, it was a kind of, you say, a weapon against war. And for me, for example, you know, in May 2021, I spent one month in Quebec. I had to do this because of COVID. So because I had to stay 15 days uh, locked <laughs> in a hotel room before going out and um, just build the, this exhibition. And I'm still thinking that this exhibition is a kind of weapon against isolation, against theses, against a certain unknowledge people have. And it's a way of sharing what we have in French culture. It's very important for me. Annabelle Mauger, Exhibition Director of Imagine Picasso, the immersive experiences on view at Pullman Yards through June 19th. You can find more information on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes catches up with Cat Power ahead of her upcoming concert at Variety Playhouse. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. 
For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. better known as Cat Power, has been making music for decades. Her newest release, Covers, is her 11th studio album and third collection of cover songs. This album is eclectic and includes songs from the likes of Billie Holiday, Frank Ocean, Bob Seger, and Iggy Pop. City Light senior producer Kim Drobes recently caught up with the musician ahead of her upcoming concert at Variety Playhouse. Marshall began with explaining how she leads her band through the studio recording process. When I went in the studio, I wanted them to relax with their instruments and just to warm up to get the mics in the right spot. And then I started composing when we were rolling. And once I felt like, you know, there was a song, like an actual song with a breakdown and a tempo change and this and that, and it sounded like music I, I like, then I jumped in the vocal booth four, four times in a row that first morning. Right, because when you record cover songs, it's not a traditional, here's the song, I'm going to put it in my voice. You actually compose new music for it, and then you put the previous artist's lyrics on top of that. Yeah, and the first song, they're playing the composition, and I didn't know what song to sing, you know, because it's a covers record, but I had composed this music, and I jumped in the vocal booth, didn't know what to do, and I thought, ah. <sighs> I had a situation with a friend of mine um, about six months earlier where he was going through a really hard time. and He used to work with Bob Seger in the 80s, and so I just played against the wind for him this day. And he looked at me and he wiped his eyes and he was able to continue. And so that was just on the top of my head. So I said, all right. And I grabbed my smartphone, got the lyrics, and I just started singing first take, done. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I was wondering about the inspiration behind the Bob Seger song. So then you just kept moving on to the next one? Yes. Mm -hmm. Asked them to try this tempo, hold back double time, stop, and not do it again. I have no idea what I'm doing. Go back in the vocal booth. We're rolling. And I'm thinking, this sounds a little creepy. And it just popped in my head. I looked up the lyrics for, I had a dream, Joe. Yeah, your cover of that Nick Cave song is so unique and was very unexpected. And these were recorded like within, uh, took like a maybe four minutes to compose with them. And then like however long the song is and then jump out, compose again. The third one was Endless Sea and the fourth one was You Got the Silver. That would be the bonus track, You Got the Silver from the Rolling Stones and Endless Sea from Iggy Pop. Sean, I got to say, your process is wild. When I tried by myself that time, like to do it, things come out, you know, like that, warming up without expectations and recording live is what I prefer. And with that sort of, there's like this threshold of uncertainty that it makes like, you know, everyone's heart is beating a little faster because nobody knows what the hell we're going to be doing. And <laughs> when we're done with the, like, it's like an exercise of instantaneous vibes, like positive vibes, being creative in that way and not having rules. It's very freeing and it's, it feels fun and like almost athletic, like in a way. Yeah, it sounds like it. One thing that I found really interesting was that you also took some of your own music and left it open to artistic reinterpretation. Would you mind sharing the story behind your cover of Frank Ocean's Bad Religion? When I was, uh, there was this record called Wander, which was my last record. And there's a song on that record called In Your Face, which I wrote for like all these, you know, white male corporate evil uh, world leaders that, you know, continually humanity and the earth up. So I wrote this song called In Your Face for those people. 
excuse me for the bad word. And so on tour, on the Wanderer tour, singing it every night, um, I made sure that we played it very quietly. And I got as far at the edge of the stage as I could. I wanted to enunciate each word, but it was, you know, night after night after night. It, like, it started to affect me physically when I would sing it. It started to make me feel really bad because it's like I'm basically putting a curse on these men. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was hurting me, that like venom thing. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm, I got to be done. I got to be done with this. So I just, I just started singing the lyrics to uh, Bad Religion. started singing every night to to that uh, song right so your previous song in your face now with the lyrics of bad religion from frank ocean yes mm-hmm. just like you know how frank sings right frank ocean mm-hmm. sings the way that you know gospel music's supposed to make you feel that's the way he sings you know that high vibration like aretha you know or rihanna yeah. that really high vibration and it made me feel it absolved, you know, that hostility. And it made it something more communal and uh, more resolved, more hopeful and just incredibly beautiful. But also at the same time, the same problem with these leaders just transcribed the different words, you know, his take on it, being religion, those men. That makes sense. And what a nice thing to be able to do for yourself to make sure that you're not just still fostering venom while you're up there yeah because i realized every live show is like a journey we all share as a Mm -hmm. community of people you know that's why i was doing it that's smart along the same lines of reprocessing emotions and songs let's talk about the fact that you took your old song hate and changed it to unhate for this yeah that is a very similar story i had been playing solo 2013 and 14 and i had been singing hate again that song was about specifically about suicide. Um, I struggled with, you know, mental health and depression since, you know, I was young. And my record of the greatest, that was the last record that I suffered from, you know, suicidal tendencies or like, mm-hmm. you know, I had to get therapy and get sober to understand my tools to protect me. So I was back on the road by myself, started playing hate again, went to South Africa, my first show. I'm looking out at, you know, black Africans, white Africans together. And I just couldn't speak that song about suicide. No way. So I couldn't do it. So I didn't play that song. And then when I got back to Atlanta from that trip, I found out I was pregnant and I had to continue tour in America and Europe and South America alone with the guitar. So I decided I was going to change it. Now that I have a soul in my belly, I decided to change it then and there to unhate so that anyone who's ever had that Um, tension of like the possibility of thinking about that just to like get that out of the brain you know turn it around you know I do are you comfortable if we talk about that little soul in your belly for a second sure how old is your son now his name is Boaz right yeah he's six he's great he'll be seven this month wow and how is motherhood treating you as a touring musician does Boaz travel with you yeah I've been touring with him since he was two months old around the world and the pandemic. That's the longest I've probably ever lived anywhere in my entire life Wow! and his entire life. So I taught him to read, do math and write and um, play piano, you know, a little bit and some guitar. And um, so he turned five and six during the pandemic. So I think being a mom, like it's a new kind of love. You can't explain it to anybody who hasn't felt it. And it's a new kind of fear, and you can't explain that Hmm. to anybody unless they've had a kid. But both of those hand-in-hand are like the great barometer to keep you going forward. It's like you have to take care of yourself because you're taking care of others. Like for me, having my son was able to unlock a lot of feelings that maybe I never had as a little kid growing up because I wasn't with my parents when I was born, you know, so until I was like four and a half. So it has unlocked a lot of really very precious puzzle pieces. Mm. And uh, it's beautiful. And I'm so lucky to 
have been able to be healthy enough to carry a soul. Oh, that was beautiful. Thank you. For our listeners that might not be as familiar with you or your work, you very briefly just touched on your childhood and the fact that your parents weren't with you until you were four years old. I'm also aware, though, that your grandmother was a huge part of your life, right? Yes, she was always like, you know, um, she passed right before the pandemic. Um, The last time played on tour before the pandemic, I had just laid her to rest the day before in South Georgia. Um, So during the pandemic, not having her, I always considered her like my best girlfriend, you know, because it didn't matter where I was in the world all these years. um, I always knew her number. I always knew her schedule. And she was always a phone call away. I'd always surprise her a couple times a year for birthday or Christmas or just out of blue. And so during the pandemic, I would be cooking for my son, you know, and I would be singing and cooking. And it dawned on me that that's how I learned to sing. Oh, she used to tape record me. Did she really? Oh, yeah. All the time. You know, she made me sing this song called Salty Dog all the time. (laughs) What what is Salty Dog? It was just a favorite song that she liked. I guess it was a song from her childhood. But uh, she'd say it now. Charlene, now sing it slower. Now, more country like. (laughs) And And so I had to dumb it down. Salty dog. But yeah, so she was a real, she was my home base, you know, she used to peel sap off of a tree, you know, because she didn't have money for chewing gum, you know, and I love it. It's it's amazing. I don't know if you've ever done it. I haven't, but I want to now. It's really nice. It like freshens your breath. Interesting. (laughs) I love it. I miss her so much. I bet you do. And my, you know, my parents and my stepdad they were just kids you know they were just kids like I was a kid once you know I was trying to tell my son yesterday like he had a tantrum about he wasn't allowed to watch YouTube and I was like you can have a tantrum all you want you know uh keep going you're not gonna you're not gonna watch it's my responsibility to keep you safe and everything and I said there's no rule book Mm. of how better I can say this to you like I'm doing the best I can and you just can't can't watch it's my job to Make sure you don't watch things that are bad for your health. How did he process that? He just looked at me like I could tell he was looking at me like, wait, you don't know what you're doing, (laughs) you know? So here you are coming back to Atlanta at the Variety Playhouse. How are you feeling about getting back up on stage and what are you planning on playing? It depends on what happens with the wind and, you know, I always run on my gut. Like that's the most important thing I think is our intuition. So, but yeah, of course I'm going to play new stuff and throw some old stuff and, you know, just try to just feel good again about being around, you know, humanity and people that love each other. And, you know, after what we've witnessed, I think those who've never had to turn a leaf, have had to since the pandemic. I think that things are, you know, unfortunately for the dark couple of years, I think people are in a lot better frame of mind than they ever have been and more powerful than they ever have been. Self-empowered. Oh baby, what a place to be In the service of the bourgeoisie also known as Sean Marshall, speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Droves. The artist will perform at Variety Playhouse this Wednesday, April 13th. More information is on our website. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Muhammad Youngay. 
I'm a portrait artist and a muralist. I call my style inspirational realism. I was originally a portrait artist, but I began composing these murals and canvas artworks that instilled pride or pulled some sort of inspirational or positive result from the viewer. My father was an artist, so like at a very young age, I was hooked. There was something about taking a blank piece of paper and then being able to fill it with color and lines, being able to create characters. And the biggest thing for me was being able to create depth. So if I can look into a piece of paper and be able to see very far into it or create something that looks like it's coming out at you, I could not get enough of that as a kid. And that just carried over from a teenager into my adulthood. I came to Atlanta to pursue hip hop in uh, 1996. By coincidence, it just happened to be the year of the Olympics. So of course I was super impressed. The Olympics had all of this energy attached to it. So here you have this international city with all these beautiful black people in positions of power and ownership and opportunity. And it was also a place that I could raise my daughters. So I love the rich history of Atlanta, what it meant to the civil rights. But what I really like the most is that it's like a blank canvas. It can really be what you want it to be. It's a metropolitan city that can also feel like the country sometimes. Like in one day, you can see people riding a horse or a dirt bike, a Harley, a Tesla, a scooter. You can see all of that in one day in Atlanta and it just feels normal. I love that it's full of black people, but it's also very diverse. And you can have the experience that you wanna have in Atlanta, depending on the people that you surround yourself with. I decided to pursue art as a career when I realized that the business of music was kinda shady and cutthroat. Um, so I would leave a studio, maybe not feeling too good, and go to a gallery show, and it was full of all of this imagery and people that were positive and uplifting. And I just kind of knew automatically which world that I fit into. When I first started painting, I would paint my heroes and I would paint images of music and jazz because that was the world that I knew. And then my daughters went to a charter school and the school was just amazing. I hadn't seen a group of people that was that like-minded and that determined to do something wonderful for my kids. I knew the way that I could contribute was to create art for the school and whatever I could do artistically, I eventually did. The principal asked me to teach visual arts and I ended up teaching there for 10 years. Somewhere in the middle of that teaching, I began doing these mural projects for our school and I actually thought it was kind of in the way of this other idea I had of going into galleries and getting into museums. But every time I did a mural, I would have another principal come to our school, see it, and ask me to do a mural at their school. And this turned into a career all its own without me really thinking about it or deciding to do it. I'm motivated by a collaboration of things, um, some of which are not the best of things like money or um, ambition and ego sometimes, but I'm also motivated by my ancestors and what their hopes and dreams were. Their tears and failures. Probably the biggest piece of the motivational pie for me is young people who view my work and my hopes that it'll activate something positive from them, something positive for their day or something positive that could impact their life. I'm inspired by so many things. I really love great movies with great dialogue. I'm inspired by poetry or books and definitely anything that's visually masterful. And it's very easy when you get that inspiration to pick up a paintbrush and then pour that back into your own work. I love the Castleberry Hill area. They would have these art strolls on the weekends. So I would start with uh, Zucot Gallery, which is my favorite one. And then I would go to all of the smaller 
independent galleries or small studios, they would open their doors and you could go through and see all the different art that's happening mixed with like nightlife and cigar bars. So that's an amazing area. Since the pandemic, I haven't really been going out to galleries. I've been seeing art online and going to the Beltline. So the Beltline has increasingly become one of my favorite places in Atlanta. And what's so cool about experiencing art on the Beltline is that you really don't go for the art. You you go for the exercise on a sunny day. But for me, the art is always the thing that I remember when I go home. Like it's always the thing that uplifts me during my exercise. So that has become my favorite way to experience art visual artist Muhammad Yange and our series Speaking of the Arts. More information about Yange's work is available on our website. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., The High Museum's curator of photography discusses the legacy of Lucinda Bunnen, the Atlanta arts advocate, philanthropist, and photographer. Plus, writer Tamar Haspel, her new book, To Boldly Grow, teaches us how to find joy, adventure, and dinner in our own backyard. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.